Okay, so turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Small chunks of verses I've seen as the uh, disseminator of it. Uh, I think Pat's the one that made, must have made the divisions, huh? Did you do the divisions? Uh, you know, Gary made the initial made, one. Made, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Running amok again. <laughs> there you go. You got mud on your heels, by the way? Oh, yeah. There you go. So, anyways, um, let's read verses 1 to 3 only because um, it's so important to the context of the four verses that I've been given. So, Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 7. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of all the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? I have to be careful not to bleed over from what I'm doing today into the text that still continues this theme of angels. Christ is the heir of God's prophetic kingdom the author of the world, ruler over the world, through his living and word of power, according to the text in verses 1 through 3. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 has at its core Psalm 2, Psalm 110, and 2 Samuel 7. I should say, actually, Hebrews 1, 1 through 7 has this at its core. Jesus has overcome the rage of the nations by his resurrection and enthronement upon David's throne. That's Psalm 2. Christ's qualifications to receive David's throne is that he is God in flesh, God's very nature and God's very glory. This leads the author to begin what he will repeatedly use thematically in the book of Hebrews. That is, Christ, who is enthroned as the Son of God, is greater and better than all. So I have a bunch of verses here. Follow this theme. Uh, so, Doreen, will you take uh, Hebrews 3.3? 3? And... Uh, Pat, will you take Hebrews 5, 1 and 5? Uh, Joyce, will you take Hebrews 8, 6 and 13? Naya, will you take Hebrews 9, 11? And uh, yeah, Mark, will you take uh, Hebrews 10, 11 and 12? And uh, Tony, will you take uh, Hebrews 12, 26 through 28? What I want to do here is just a quick answer from the audience on why is Christ better? This is the theme of the book. Christ is better than the angels. Verse 4. But it's not the only reference in relationship to Christ being better, greater than the angels. So, first first read. That's Doreen. Hebrews 3.3. 3. Who being made the brightness of His glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Yes, 3-3. Three, three. 
Hebrews 3 3 3. Hebrews 3 3. Hebrews 3 3. It's okay, Dory. Sounds familiar. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And as much as he who built the house has more honor than the house. There you go. So he is better than who? Christ is better than who? Moses. Remember when we make this reference, we're making a reference to the relationship how the author lays out his premise. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purification of his sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's a loadful. It's almost as if the author is compelled to say, this is why he's better than all. Angels, Moses, Pat next. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So the implication there is because he's the only begotten son, referring back to verse chapter 1, that he's better than the high priests. Even in his own day. Mm. All right. Uh, Hebrews eight six and thirteen. I think that was Joseph. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, as the covenant in which he is mediator is superior to the old, and it is bound in better promises. There you go. The better promises are in Christ. That means, therefore, the old covenant is obsolete, ready to fade away, as the author of Hebrews says. It's a better covenant that he establishes in and through his blood. Alright, Hebrews 9.11. Naya. Uh, oh yeah, read 13. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging is new. Ready to pass away, is my translation. <coughs> Naya. That's uh, Hebrews 9.11, right? But Christ being come in high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect He's greater than the what? The tabernacle. There you go. You think the you think the author of Hebrews really has something to say about this betterness of Christ, right? Uh, wrong English there, of course. Betterness of Christ, but you know what I mean. Uh, Hebrews ten, eleven, and twelve. Mark. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. <clears throat> but when this priest has op- had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Mm. Amen. Better sacrifice. Amen. That's why we worship Him after we follow the Bible study, is it not? And we're worshiping Him even now, learning of Him and His greatness and His majesty. Hebrews twelve twenty six to 28 Who did I give that to? To Tony. At this time His voice took the earth. But now he has come once more and will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removal of what can be shaken that is created things so that what can be sorry so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we have are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. The kingdom that he establishes. 
is a greater kingdom. Because it's unshakable. Every other king under men is shakable. We see it with earthquakes and how it can shake the, the very foundations and the core of a city and make it just dust. Right? And yet this kingdom is a spiritual kingdom to which he will establish and is establishing right now and will fulfill in the establishment of that in the future. Let me just read what Jesus says in his ministry in relationship to this. Luke, you don't have to turn there. Luke 11, 19, 20, and 31. They confront Jesus. This is a, a, a theme that I'm going to go with in terms of those who question Jesus, who he is. And their questions were based on the fact, we don't believe who you're saying you are. And if by the Beelzebub I cast out de- demons, this is Jesus saying, speaking here in response to them, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, you shall be, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And also verse 31. The queen of the south shall rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. A quote from Jesus. The kingdom is here. Someone who is greater than Solomon is here to establish a kingdom that is in your midst and you're not seeing it. They think he's part of the demonic kingdom when they're questioning him here in this context in Luke 11. Do you think also that the shaping of this kingdom has to also do with the fact that it can never be overthrown, the king will never be replaced, and so the word shaken can also be kind of a synonym might be trouble. There, there will be no trouble in this kingdom. Well, that, that would be part of it. Psalm 23, you could say. Um, the point that I'm making here is this. The text that I've been given today in verses 4 through 7 are referring to Psalm 2, Psalm 110, 2 Samuel 7. All kingdom texts, all messianic texts in the relationship to this one who comes as the Son of God, the only begotten of God, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who is the very essence of God, who is the radiance of His glory and the majesty of the very person of the face of God. And here He is. He's greater than the angels. Now in Second Samuel, you don't have to turn there. We're going to turn there eventually. But I just want to read this text right here. Second Samuel 7. And I'm just going to read three verses in a row. We'll eventually read the whole text when we get to it. 12, 14, and 16 said this, When your days are coming, he's speaking, by the way, Nathan is speaking to Solomon. Uh, I'm sorry, speaking to David concerning Solomon, his son, who will be the one who will build a permanent temple. He says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. That's talking of Solomon. But there's a dual prophetic fulfillment here. Who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. Solomon's kingdom, Christ's kingdom. He also says in verse 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Understanding this is a double fulfillment. The first part of a father to the son is fulfilled in Hebrews. The second part is fulfilled with Solomon the son who is corrected by the father. okay, Or by his father or the lineage of his father. 
because he did sin like his father, didn't he? And also, verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. All three texts speaking about the foreverness of the kingdom of God coming through the loins of David, through Solomon, and yet Jesus says there's someone greater than Solomon here now. And then the author quotes Psalm 2, which is the coronation of the king, receiving his kingdom. Let's just read that real quick in Hebrews, just as a reference point to see where we're at. I've got room for questions, so don't worry. We're, we're getting there. Got a laid foundation here. Verse 6 says, verse 5, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Quoting Psalm 2. The only begotten son in Psalm 2 receives the kingdom. And eventually there's a great divine warning that says, Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. That's speaking of divine authority as a king who has the right in the kingdom for judicial and capital punishment. Right? There we go. There we go. So, by the way, what was the main reason Jesus was rejected as Messiah? And by the way, you know, there are many reasons why he was crucified on the cross. We, we know that. By the way, just as an audience, never do what he's doing right now. <laughs> um, unless it could be very important, but I just think, never do what he's doing right now. I won't, I won't say the name because he was in the last row in the back. But I think the song at the beginning of it might have been a dead giveaway. Unbelievable. There's a reason why I don't have a smartphone because it doesn't ring. I'm not smart enough actually to pick it up. So anyways... Um, What's the main reason they killed Jesus? His claim to be God, really. Claim, his claim to be, be God, God was the ultimate use of their capital punishment. Or I should say, of the Roman use of capital punishment. He proclaims to be God. That's blasphemy. Kill him. They also feared him. Sure. Because Absolutely. There you go. Thanks, Tony. They see, he's not the only one that, that stops you in the middle of your conversation. That's true. That's true. There's two Everybody of does. There's two of us here. So the idea is this. Yes, they, did Jesus, was Jesus uh, put on the cross because he threatened the entire system of the Judaic system? Absolutely. Did he, did he, did he offend them by his, um, by his miracles and healings and just great compassion on the day of the Sabbath? Oh, they hated him for that. But they killed Jesus Christ first and foremost for saying that he's God in the flesh. By the way, we're in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. Max, is it? Is it? Mark. Mark. Good to see you guys. And good to see you guys. Hebrews chapter 1. So, they killed him for making himself out to be the Son of God. What, what, what do you want now, Wally? No, you're Todd. I just figured I'd introduce you to them, too, because they probably forgot. No, I met him last week. I just... I know, but you forgot their name. I'm 59 years old, and I forget names. Oh. What's your name again? Okay, there you go. All right. Now, here's the question. If you said to a Jew today, an unsaved Jew, not a Messianic Jew, that Jesus' life and ministry is better than the angels' ministry, because that's our verse 4 text in Hebrews chapter 1, if you said to him, Jesus is better than the angels, what kind of response would you get? 
Very good. Depends what kind of what 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 degree the Jew you're talking to okay. is a religious Jew or not. All right. I mean, you know. All right. If you say to a Muslim, Jesus is better than the angels. Probably agree. Well, yeah. And you probably would get quite a few Jews who would mm. not overly commit themselves. They may know where you're coming from and where you're going, but they'll say, well, of course he's better than the angels. He's a really good man and a good prophet, right? But when we lay on the table... Garrett, go ahead. Uh, are you discussing being better than the angels right now? I am, yeah. Okay. Well, the betterness is in the context of him being the Messianic king and having a kingdom. Right, but... What greatness would they have ascribed to angels? Did they have some sort of, would you say, high, lofty view of angels? So to describe Christ as greater than them would have seemed to them then almost like a ridicule on angels or a mockery on how great angels were in the Jewish mindset. Yeah, I'm not an expert on the Jewish mindset of angels. That's a big question. If you have something to add to that, I'd, I'd love I it. I just want to say that in Colossians, it, mm. Judaizers were in the mm. background of the book of Colossians. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they were accused of by the apostle writing to them, let no man beguile you of your reward, humility, and so on. It says, um, uh, hold on, where did that verse go? It says... Uh, Talking about like worship of the moon and angels yeah. and asceticism and stuff like that. I don't know what that is. Like. Oh yeah, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility in worshiping of angels, intruding into those things and so on. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of esteem that the Jews would have had for angels because mm-hmm. angels were very important in the Old Testament economy in the way in which angels guided them through the wilderness. They intervened in their histories. Mm-hmm. But in this politically correct age, I think if you ask your average unsaved Jew, especially if they look ahead a little bit, they probably wouldn't argue the point that Jesus is better than angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that sense, in that vein, it, it fits the politically correctness of the day. Jesus is a prophet, but he's not God. That's the difference. And that's the difference between biblical Christianity and either, you could say, um, nominal Christianity and every other religion within the world. Uh, If Jesus is God, then therefore, he is over all. There is no one above him. All right? So, in Psalm 2, I'm just going to read this quickly. The Jew would be not very receptive to the Old Testament promises that refer to Jesus, that we believe, as the Messianic king who has come, received the kingdom, and sits at the right hand of David's throne right now. And yet, this is exactly who he is and what the offensive part of Jesus is. 6 through 8 says. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. And therefore, it refers to the installment after his resurrection. You could say this is the coronation of Christ's kingship. Where Jesus Christ, being the only begotten Son of God, usurps his now his rightly right reign to rule the nations with a rod of iron you could say now we see an allusion to that go back to Hebrews chapter 1 
It's what Gary had last week. And Gary didn't mention it, but it is part of it. But there's so many directions. And trust me, I don't fault anybody in any direction they go in the book of Hebrews. There are just directions you can go in 50 million different ways. But I want you to um, look at verse 2 of chapter 1 of Hebrews. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the heir of this world, and the world received him not. They killed him, because they declared to be the Psalm 2, the Psalm 2 coronated king, or soon to be coronated king in the first century. Is that not also attest to who Jesus Christ really is? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. The, the sonship of God. You have the eternal sonship of God. We don't want to get into a Trinitarian understanding of the Scriptures here, uh, but we have to understand a little bit. But there's the eternal sonship of God and then the incarnation and the continuing of that sonship as the eternal plan of God of the three persons of the Trinity and their distinctiveness and declaring that this is my Son. Listen to Him. As the scripture says. So here's the thing. Therefore, and again, like I said, I can take this to so many different angles. Uh, I could have taken it in the direction where Gary was referring to about the importance of angels to the Judaic mind and therefore just have a whole study just on that. And I, and I didn't. Um, but I want to um, approach it from this direction. There are two places. There are other places. But I chose two places where the Jew asked Jesus... Whom do you make yourself out to be? And in another place in John 12, who is the Son of Man? That's the $64 million question. Jesus himself, which is the text we're not going to cover, even says, who do men say that I am? And then he said to his own disciples, who do you say that I am? It's the question. It's the $64 million question that everyone here has to answer. And being a biblically born-again Christian, I hope you have the answer. Because if you don't, you're not a Christian. Right? So let's look at these two verses. And it's very, very... It's just wonderful. Because I want you to already see in advance. Picture this. Who are you? And Jesus' answer reveals His glory. Who is the Son of Man? Jesus reveals His glory. And they don't get it. Then Jesus... And we're going to go to the third time. Jesus asks the question in Matthew 22. The son of David. Whose son is he? And he reveals his glory. See, the, the questions are still being asked nowadays. We are to have the answers in this church to go out by revealing the glory of God and all that he has displayed in his word, in his person, in creation, and demonstrate he is the son of man, the son of God, the eternal son of God. So let's go to the first text. Go to John 8. Everybody follow me here? Psalm 2 kicks us right off the bat. He's greater than the angels. He's the messianic king. He's establishing himself a kingdom. He's already the coronated son of man. Okay? And therefore puts him above all things. And people this day and in the first century were still asking a question. Who are you? Who is this man? 
would it be safe? Would it be safe to say that people trembled in his presence because they were afraid to ask him a question? Because they he was he was laying, he was splaying people out on the ground, wasn't he? Literally, no man ever spoke like this before. Mm. I mean, I don't know about you. I'd be the silent one in the crowd. I I dare to ask a bad question, right? Or the wrong question. Anyways, John eight. I have to get there. I'm preaching more than I'm actually teaching here. It's hanging around Gary George for 19 years. You know what I mean? He turns you into a preacher rather than a teacher. Alright, John 8. I want to read... Let's read first John 8.53. This sets the stage actually for John 12. John 8.53. Surely, you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died... To whom do you make yourself out to be? Remember, this is a very important question because the question is based on the eternal, well, I should say from their perspective, he's made himself, Jesus has made himself out greater than Abraham. They're getting it. Because he even challenged him and he says, if you are children of Abraham, you'd be doing the deeds of your father Abraham and you're not, but you're of your father the devil. Well, when you challenge somebody like that, you're going to get a response back. That's what he's getting. And they're saying, then who are you claiming to be? Are you even claiming to be greater than our father Abraham? Look what he says. Verses 54 through 58. Jesus answered, If I, remember I told you to look for his glory, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. That's a challenging statement right off the bat. You have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. Wow. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews say back to him, the Jews therefore said to him, you are not 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said, truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am the very same of the very same essence of the Father who revealed himself on that mountain to your relatives. Coronation or announcement was of who he was. He was already who he mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. It was just the announcement of it. Yes, yes. He he is speaking here of his glorified relationship with the Father, and they do not get it. It only you could say foments a greater hatred to him because Jesus did one thing very well and very clearly, and it led to the cross. I have a relationship with the Father that only those who are born again, only those who are born of the Spirit can know me. No man knows the Father except the Son and who the Son is. I'm sorry. No man knows the Son except the Father and who the Father is except the Son and to anyone to whom the Son reveals Himself. It's a sovereign act of God, brothers and sisters, that we know Jesus Christ as God and the world is still blind. I was just uh, thinking also that Jesus just announced that before 
Abraham was. He didn't say I was. He said I am. Letting you know that he always was. Mm-hmm. Also, letting you know I am that he is God. I am. Mm-hmm. You might ask the reason why am I on this theme? Because it correlates with the entirety of the very beginning section of chapter 1 of Hebrews. Mm. He's the radiance of His glory, Mm. the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. He just says, I believe His word. My Father glorifies me. And you do not accept me. Before Abraham, I am. He might as well be saying, I am the radiance of the Father's glory, and you do not accept me. You do not see the essence of the Father in me. Find fault with me. Challenge me. Test me. And no one ever was successful in that, were they? Gary? When Moses asked the Lord in the burning bush, who should I say have sent me? What is your name? Mm -hmm. And the Lord says, you tell them that I am. Mm -hmm. That I am has sent you. So is that I am the I am right here in John 8 that you're referring to? Yes, I think, uh, if I remember right, Carson even says that this is one of the seven times he uses the I am, the ego mean in Greek. And this is one or two of the seven times that he believes is a direct reference to not only to deity, but of the same essence and glory of the Father in that sense. Um, The other five references of I am's are not necessarily a slam dunk, but he understands why people take the other five I am's in the Gospel of John as being direct references to his relationship with the Father. But this is one of the ones that Carson points out and says, this is a no-brainer, basically. That he's saying, I'm God, and you don't receive me, nor the glory that I'm manifested. By the way, he has a veiled glory, but listen to his words, and you will hear the glory come out of those words. Right? You were going to say something? Yeah, you were going to say in John, you've got, you know, I am the door. Right. I am uh, the bread of life. Right. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. Mm-hmm. I am the resurrection. I mean, it's just loaded with the right. I am. Right. Then you turn over to Revelation right. and the same thing. I right. am he right. that liveth and was right. dead and am alive. Carson would say those texts are implied mm-hmm. where this one mm-hmm. is direct. Mm-hmm. This is direct. I am God and you don't receive my word. God has spoken through me. I'm speaking to you. You're speaking to God. That's a tough nut to crack. With one of the other five being the later part of John where uh, they go to capture Jesus and uh, Jesus says, Whom seek ye? And they said, Mm. Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. Mm -hmm. And they went backwards and fell to the ground. Oh yeah, amen to that. Amen. That's the burning bush in display. Absolutely. Tony? Not sure. Okay. Not sure. Let's go to the second one, John 12. Another question asked. The first question in John 8 was, Whom do you make yourself out to be? In other words, in the context of basically the conversation Jesus was having with them, they got what he was trying to communicate. So who do you really say you are then? Right? The next one is more poignant. Who is this Son of Man? Because Jesus has used this reference as a title for himself. So John 12, let's read verse 29 and 34 first. Jesus has returned from Bethany to go to the temple. In the meantime, I take that back, that was uh, in John 8. Uh, here, Lazarus has just recently been resurrected. All right. 
John John 12. John 12. Yes. John 12, verse 29 and 34. And and just look at the question. I mean, the idea. Now, by the way, the Greeks had just said, we want to see Jesus. Lazarus is healed. The Greeks come along. They talk to Philip. We want to see Jesus. He makes a statement concerning himself in relationship to how a person is saved. So then he comes down and let's read uh, verse 28 actually. 28, 29, and 34. Father, glorify thy name. There came, therefore, a voice out of heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The multitude, therefore, who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. There's this angelic connection. Well, he is a holy man, right? He is this person who claims to have a relationship with God, but the Jews themselves still have not received him as Messiah, as the Messianic king uh, who has a kingdom and is God himself. Uh, Verse 34. The multitude therefore answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They couldn't understand Jesus' uh, declaration that he is uh, going to die on a cross. This is what some of the commentators say. They're, they're, They're catching on with his usage of the phrase lifting up as being a reference to his death yet to come. If he's a Messiah and he's going to have an eternal kingdom, right? Yet he's going to die. Who is this Son of Man? Can you see the confusion? The Old Testament prophecies referred to this Messiah as being eternal and having an eternal kingdom. Well, by the way, the only way you become eternal is if you're God. And then God grants eternal life to those who are saved within him. But they ask this question, who is this Son of Man? Look at Jesus' response. It's the same kind of response. He points to his glory all over again. All right. So, John 12, 35 and 36. Who is the Son of Man? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus therefore said to them, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light. The darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of the light. Do you see what he is saying? I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness but have the light of light, he says just a little later on. Believe in me, you will have the light. And and the the beauty of that statement is not just salvation. You will begin in this regeneration to which God produces within each one of us. Begin to reflect the very glory that God intended in His creatures to reflect back to the image of Christ and through Christ, the reflection of Christ's image back to the Father. I mean, there's a lot of theology in this statement right here that we don't have time to discuss. But He says, look at Me. And see the glory within me that my Father has. And you'll be sons of the light. That's my answer to you who says, who is this Son of Man? See the glory in me. 
would you also look at the word light as truth? Because Not in this text, because he's speaking about the glory. Now, granted, the word of God reveals the glory of God in that sense. Yes, I, I will say there's an allusion to it, uh, an echo of it, you could say, uh, because Jesus did that in John 8, listening to his word. The word of God reveals his glory. Hebrews 1, he's the radiance of his glory, the exact <laughs> representation of his nature. We get back to that reference. John 14, 6. There you go. Now, why the way, by the way, why is this so important to the readers of the book of Hebrews? Why is it so important that they understand that Jesus is God? He sits on his throne. He's greater than all. Why? Mark? Because they were being told that they had to overthrow everything they'd been brought up on. They had the prophets. They had the, uh, the Old Testament. Um, and they just, they were being told that's all passe. <coughs> okay. That, that he was really trying to reveal the new covenant to them. Um, but they were not they weren't buying it persecution has a really I mean we're just so <coughs> blessed here in this country but persecution has a way of separating the wheat from the chaff uh, the lamb from the goats uh, the Christian from the non-Christian and from that standpoint uh, one of the overall themes to the readers of the book of Hebrews is the fact that um, he is so much better. Why do you want to go back to the old Mosaic Law? Why do you want to go back to the old sacrificial system? Why do you want to be like a dog that returns to his own vomit? You're only going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles for your hypocrisy. Yeah. I, I agree with what you're saying. It is a reference also to um, the law. The Pharisees uh, pushing the law 613, 614 laws and Jesus says I am the way not the law it's the spirit, it's the glory okay well let's, let's not separate what Jesus did to offend those in his ministry compared to the actual letter written to uh, Jewish related Christians maybe Hebrew Christians in particular uh, certainly they knew the law uh, by the way, Gary made it, and I'm not trying to, but I heard R.C. Sproul on the very same subject just only a couple years ago, and it's a very big scholarly debate exactly who the author of Hebrews is writing to. Mm. It's not simplistic, but what we do is we get a sense of the type of people they are being, that are in the book of Hebrews being written to, who have a Jewish relationship, probably some Hebrew uh, Christians as well because of the, the references and the directions of those references to the Mosaic Law the covenants and all that's entailed within it and the necessity of them to be, be able to understand the, the Old Testament to understand the purpose of the letter that was going to answer your question sir. yes yeah. you asked the question why is it so important for the Hebrew readers right. to uh, understand about the deity of Christ and I think it's to answer that question, I would say it's because the author is trying to contrast the old covenant under Moses, mm -hmm. who was their leader, who was right. the voice of God to them. Now there's a switching of God. Yeah. You've got a greater than Moses yep. here, yep. who speaks not from Mount Sinai, but he speaks from heaven. Yep. Those who refused Moses, who spoke on earth, were punished. How much greater is the punishment 
for those who don't hear the voice of the one who speaks from heaven yeah. are greater than Moses yeah. is here. And the author makes a very big deal of that when he says Moses was faithful in his house. Christ is faithful in his house. Amen. Why? Because it's a greater kingdom that cannot be torn down. It's an indestructible kingdom because it's a spiritual kingdom. And therefore, don't put your heart on this world. Do not do it. Even in persecution, you cannot put your heart into what a relief of persecution will give you. Because in the end, it's about being in Christ and being a Christian who is glorifying God in this world. I think very simply, the strange showed that in many ways all of the evidence of what's written in the Old Testament points to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he's using genealogy, he's using all kinds of evidence right. and right. saying to all of those scriptures that you read about the Messiah to come, it all points to me. That's right. What he's trying to say. That's right. And and what makes Christ so special is that, you know, Jesus when he asked that question, who do people say that I am? Well some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elijah. And and that's not the direction that the Christian should go. You're God. You've proven yourself to me. I think he's also making a point that now the physical is being superseded by the spiritual. Mm-hmm. Because he's because he says he's the light of the world, they had a physical lampstand. Well he's the lampstand. Right. And there's so many other um, you know, references to human decisions, uh, like in mm-hmm. John, uh, and, and this is superior, and the testimony comes from the Father. And the verses 1 through 3 are the magnum opus mm-hmm. of the entire letter, from the standpoint that if you don't get verses 1 to 3 from what it's saying in relationship to Christ being the very essence and the glory of the Father, then you won't get the rest of the book. It would be a book written to people who just don't know who this Christ is and why he's better. It just won't. Second Samuel 7, it'd be a good read for you this week. Uh, Christ's works were enough to prove that he is the son of David that um, was being spoken of by Nathan the prophet and he now sits on David's throne, which by the way is a, is a big deal even in other interpretive camps within Christianity. That statement can be inflammatory as well. All right, go to Matthew 22. I told you there were three texts. John 8, John 12, now Matthew 22. It's a beautiful text. I've used this uh, with people who don't believe that Jesus is God. I've used this, I think, with Jehovah Witnesses. uh, Definitely with Jews. Um, It's an indefensible text from a opponent's perspective uh, and it, we shouldn't be surprised that they ask Jesus no more questions after this after Jesus asked the question back to them he stops them in their tracks history is over about their inquiries of him who are you this is the last so verse 41 through 46 now while the Pharisees were gathered together Jesus asked them a question. Ah, the tables are turned. Saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? In other words, God. Using one of the names of God. All right. 
The Lord, so he's quotes Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. Speaking of a kingdom and a kingship, isn't it? If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. So, how does Jesus answer? There's multiple. I've got four things down here. How does Jesus answer them? By using Psalm 110. By the way, that's a quote from Psalm 110, so we don't have to go there. Verse 44, verses 1 and 2. Speaking about the eternal kingship of God and His authority over all of creation. All right. So how does He answer them? What Pat's the, the expert on the methodology of answering the, gain, answering the gainsayers. <laughs> right? The Columbo... Was it what you call it? The Columbo effect? Or? Columbo. Yeah. Columbo and a bunch of tactics when you talk to people in the world who are unsaved. Jesus is using certain tactics here to confront the ignorance of the Jew in relationship to Messianic prophecy. All right? terrifying moment for them by the way probably it silenced them so what is it what's the tactics Psalm 110 what does it do what does Psalm 110 by quoting verse 44 do to the skeptic when it says the Lord said to my Lord what is being said there the Lord Jehovah says to my sovereign God who's the Lord talking to the Son of God. So the Father says to the Son, you can make it equivalent to. The Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand. In other words, he's given Christ equal authority as the Father. Until I make thine enemies thy footstool. He's saying, look in the Old Testament. Look at Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. You'll see that the Messianic King that I'm proclaiming to be, the Son of Man who, just, who you just asked me the question about in John 12, is God. Whether you receive it or not, it doesn't matter. It matters to you because you'll spend time in hell because you don't believe in the only Son of God. By the way, why is it so important that Jesus be God? That's right. Only God is perfect. Only God can qualify to be the perfect Lamb of God to hang on a cross to pay the penalty of sin. It's the reason why we see the echo in John uh, in Hebrews 1-3. through And he sat down on the right hand of the majesty in high. Why? Because the air that the prophecy of the Old Testament proclaimed and made purifications of sins what proved he was God on the cross and finished his work as Messiah. Man, there's a lot of theology in Hebrews. And we just got through you know, seven verses. Let me give you, because of time, four things I see out of this. Jesus is telling him his seed is of a divine origin, fully God, fully man. Verse 42, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, you can't talk about a son until you talk about progeny and seed. He's saying, because of his association in this context, I'm of the seed of the Father. The theologians call it generation, not regeneration. It's the proceeding forth of the essence of the Father to the Son in His incarnated state. 
Therefore, I am God. I am the generated Son of God. I am of the seed and the progeny of the Father. Now, there's a lot of complication stuff in this theology of the Trinity. I'm not going beyond that. But suffice it to say, Jesus is speaking about His seed and how the seed is connected to the eternal Trinity. Just want to flip in that expression, eternal generation, so that no one would get some impression that he became generated at a certain time, mm-hmm. or that he became a son in a moment mm-hmm. in time, but he was eternally the right. son. Right. So they technically would use a theological term, eternal generation of right. Jesus. Right. And good point. And also they would they would um, make certain that they would also emphasize he he he. Um, proceeded forth from the Father. He's not created. Jehovah Witness come to your door. He says, uh, begotten means to beget. Beget means to be created. And therefore, he's a man. An only man. Oh, that's not it. Not at all. Second point. Alright. How does Jesus answer the skeptics that he's proclaiming to be God? Not only that he is of the seed of the divine origin of the Father, but Secondly, he is of the same essence of the Father. The Lord said to my Lord. We discussed that. By the way, can you sit at the right hand of the eternal Spirit of God, because God is Spirit, and live? What makes it so that we are able to live in the presence of the Father and the Son when we are given our resurrected bodies? We are in glorified bodies reflecting the same image and glory of the essence of God back to Him. (coughs) So the Son who sits on the right hand of the Father is reflecting of the same glory of the Father in order to be able to sit next to the Father. He's the radiance of His glory in the exact representation of His nature. Hebrews 1 again. Thirdly, verse 44b until I put my enemies beneath thy feet. Jesus will inherit the messianic kingdom, which David and the prophets spoke of. I am a king. You say that I am a king. I'm trying to remember the text. Um, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I was born, for this I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Right? That everyone that is of the truth may hear my voice. There you go. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. You can't hear the voice of the King Messiah, the Davidic King, unless you're born again. Amen. You have to have a renewed spirit. That stone has to give way to life and flesh. A spiritual rebirth, not a physical birth. And by this, the Spirit of God opens the heart of man, the mind of man, to see Jesus as who He is and proclaims to be. It's the reason why I remember Pat, and I'm going to disagree with Pat just a little bit. I love disagreeing with Pat. (laughs) He says, you know, when we go to work and we talk about politics, right? Talking about politics and using our Christianity to to manifest the truth. And and Pat had said, well, I don't know about too much benefit about, you know, being a politician and in manifesting uh, the gospel, you know, we're talking to people who are dead in sin. And I thought about that a little bit later after Pat had said that over a couple of days. And I said, yeah, but that's what we do for everybody, whether you're a politician or a plumber. Mm. So we have to be unashamed about what we believe and who we believe in. And you will cause offense if you say Jesus is the only way because Jesus is God. Muhammad's not God. 
Buddha is not God. Jesus is God. All right. Last one. What's my verse here? Oh, yeah. I have already mentioned this too. So finally, to sit at the right hand of God is to also reflect His glory back to Him. The Father and the Son are upon David's throne face to face. Uh, You know, the imagery is that the Father sits on a throne and the Son sits to His right. But the Father is spirit. So we have to see that as imagery. The Father, in my opinion... Like the scripture says, he fills the heavens and the earth with his presence. He fills that throne room with his presence. The son is always by his side because the father is in that throne room with the fullness of his presence. He's in all of his creation. He fills it. All right. So go to 2 Corinthians 4, 6, a very well-known text. But boy, when you put a well-known text into the context of something you're studying, it has that much more impact and you go, wow, for worship ahead. Right? Go to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. I could quote it, but it's more important for us to read it. Wonderful context. Remember I just said, you cannot believe unless your heart is changed. You cannot understand who this man Jesus is, this Son of Man, this Son of God, unless you've been converted. And He fills you with the knowledge of Himself. His Word manifests His glory. Look what Paul says here, starting in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they may not see... What? the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said... Oh, this is Hebrews 1. This is Psalm 110. This is Psalm 2. This is Second Samuel 7. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in the hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do you see that? The world is blinded, we are not. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And it's a demonstration. It's a reminder that we are truly in union with Christ saved in Christ because we accept him as God the rest of the world does not we see Jesus a little lower than the angels but crowned now with glory and honor looking unto Jesus the author that finishes the faith alright so any questions Uh, my time is up it's two minutes late but I actually did better than I thought I was going to thank you I hope you're in a praiseworthy mood right now. Because I'll tell you, we're talking about the eternal Son of God reflecting His glory in us. Because now, and, and if, you ever go, if you want to go to the Trinitarian study this winter, we're going to talk about Christ, the hope of glory in you. Christ, who is the Spirit living in you. Which is, by the way, the beaming, radiance, glory of God in you being reflected out in your new nature, in your new life, lived in a new way. Back to God. 
through Christ. That's the Christian life. And so we go up and worship and say, Lord, I'm not who I should be, but I know I'm not who I was. And I'm reflecting the glory now more now than I did in the past. And I look forward to reflect the glory of God more in the future to glorify the glorified one whose name is Christ the Messiah. Let's finish in prayer. Father, we worship and praise you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lead us upstairs to worship. To worship the sovereign King, the Lord, the Lord of glory. Amen. Thank you. If anybody